This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, welcome to the podcast. This is Barry Ritholtz, and my guest today is Joe Saluzzi. You probably know him uh, as co-author of the book Broken Markets or a blog poster at Themis Trading. He's actually uh, an institutional trader, uh, agency trader, agency broker on behalf of big mutual funds, hedge funds, what have you. Joe and his partner, Sal, were very early in identifying problems with markets, uh, with market structures. They identified some glitches from algorithmic trading, from high-frequency trading, uh, issues with dark pools. And they've been a pretty vocal set of um, more than critics, but participants in the markets who want to make them better, fairer, less expensive, uh, more even-handed for for all participants. Uh, they've brought a lot of um, let's call it malfeasance uh, to the public's attention. Their first white paper had come out in 2008, right in the middle of the financial crisis, when no one was thinking about things like market structure. But once we had the 2010 flash crash, I think people started paying a whole lot more attention to them. I I know these guys probably for five or six years. Um, through the usual circuits, radio, TV, conferences, what have you. You know, it's a really small world, and you end up bumping into them. Today's conversation is a little uh, technical, a little wonky. If you find this sort of stuff interesting, I think you'll find it fascinating. Uh, there are very, very few people who are as, as knowledgeable from a trading perspective about market structures and potential flaws uh, in what's going on, and, and you'll hear... You know, things have gotten better from the flash crash, but not nearly as as good as as Joe and Sal would like to see them. Um, So that's a positive. But, you know, we're still not quite there and there's still risk uh, of another flash crash, not only in equities, but as we've seen in treasuries, in uh, currencies. It turns out that commodities may be the best structured market there is because they have some inherent rules and inherent structures built in that work better than some of these other markets. So I could keep babbling about this for hours, but rather than do that, let's just go right to my conversation with Joe Saluzzi of Themis Trading. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Joe Saluzzi of Themis Trading. Him and his partner are the authors of Broken Markets, How High-Frequency Trading and Predatory Practices on Wall Street Are Destroying Investor Confidences and Hurting Your Portfolios. Joe, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, great. Thanks for having me here today. So I wanted to have you guys on, and by coincidence, it works out that you follow a week where we had a quant, Cliff Asnes, fascinating conversation, but he's been a fairly, he calls it, tepid defender of high-frequency trading. Before, so so it just turned out fortuitously that we have you on the week after. Um, and coming up, we have Brad Katsuyama from IEX, and he's also going to discuss market structures. But before we get into the nitty gritty of this, a little background about yourself: uh, finance uh, bachelor's at NYU, and then an MBA at Chapel Hill down at North Carolina. Before you guys founded Themis Trading, you worked at Instanet. But the question I really have to ask is, how did you find your way into investigating issues in market structure? Yeah, that's a great question. And if you would have asked me, you know, 
five or eight years ago, would we be here today? Absolutely not. You know, our, our job is to trade stocks. That's what we do for a living. We're agency brokers. We trade for institutional clients, hedge funds, mutual funds, and so on. But we got our start, as you mentioned, Sal and I both worked at Instanet in the 90s, mm-hmm. the early 90s, before electronic trading, just as electronic trading was really taken off in the equities business. So we kind of, we cut our teeth trading electronically. We learned a lot there. We really saw it progress and, and then started to see the rule changes happening, mainly at the SEC, some things like Reg ATS and a few other regulations. So let, let's get into that in a little bit. But for, for the layperson who may be listening to this and not familiar with Instanet, I began my career as a trader. So you had either a level two or a level three, depending on the access, whether you were a buyer or whether you were making markets. And Instanet was a private network that institutions, institutional network, used to buy and sell stocks with each other when they maybe were trading a little outside of the market, outside of the bid and ask, and moving real size so as to not disrupt the market. Is that a fair yeah, assessment? Yeah, that, that was its original intent, exactly like you said. Um, eventually, brokers came on the system. Just like today, finding liquidity was tough back then when you had two institutions trying to cross stock. They didn't exactly always meet. Brokers were then allowed on the system. But the real action on Instanet was between institutional investors, was blocking up stock, was trying to put up 50, 100,000 shares without moving the stock. And and that's the trick. And even today, there's still the trick to, to trading stocks is trying to find a piece of liquidity, trying to find that block without having the noise come through and a mm-hmm. lot of that excess leakage. So that's what our job was. Our job was to facilitate trades. We weren't prop traders or anything. We were agency guys, just like we are now. So so you traded on behalf of endowments, foundations, trusts, hedge funds, which were much smaller way back mm-hmm. then. Mutual funds were the big boys on the block in those days. And so your business were commission brokers. You would get paid for the trades you executed on their behalf. Right. And even better, actually, the clients had the system on their desk themselves. So we were actually, we were more coverage people. So mm-hmm. we covered an account and whether it, you know, you kind of helped that account along, but they can actually hit the keys themselves. They didn't need us. And the power that the buy side, particularly the institutional investment community got, that was the first time where they were really involved in the process and they really liked it, which is why the instant revenue stream went like a ski slope from the early 90s. It really ramped Classic up. Classic hockey stick. It, it was incredible. So, so from back in the 90s, what has changed in the markets? A lot. Uh, <laughs> well, a lot for the good. A lot for the good. So, you know, we're known as critics and so on, but we don't. We see a lot of good that has come over over the last 10, 15 years in the market. Narrowing spreads, uh, lower commission costs. Sure. Um, and, and that came about really in around 2002. That's when decimalization came out, when they changed those odd eights and quarters, right? That right. We used were to be fractions. Mm-hmm. Everybody was, back, everybody who was on a trading desk knew what teenies were. Yep, teenies, right? 64ths trade, even. Right, that's right. Know, there was crazy stuff. Teenies were sixteenths of, mm-hmm. uh, of a cent, and yeah. I was good at doing math in my head, but a lot of people had a hard time yeah. with it. <laughs> decimalization was good for the people who were a little fractionally challenged, let's call it. Absolutely. A good thing. Um, one thing that they forgot about was you know, putting in some sort of minimum spread, but we can get to that later when it comes to small caps. But really, electronic trading is what brought down the cost of trading, right? Today, there could be this whole argument, we can get into it later, about high-frequency trading and whether or not that increased or decreased cost. But the real fact, and you look at charts and you can see this, transaction cost for institutional investors dropped around 2002, 2003, four. That's when the real drop and the real decline came in. Since so 07 or 08, we've kind of leveled off. We haven't, we've mm-hmm. gone down and we pretty much stayed down there. So that drop in trading costs, did it imbue to the advantage of the investor, the institution? Where did that squeezing of margins end up 
falling. Sure, that that should go directly to an investment because you're a, if you're a hedge fund or an investment advisor and you have fees and expenses, transaction costs are certainly one of them, or at least explicitly commission costs. You know, there's more of an implicit transaction cost, which will, you know we talk about all the time on the on the institutional world is how much did it cost you to really get into and out of that stock. How much leakage was there? Did you move the stock a certain amount? Did you get the VWAP, the volume weighted average price, or did you actually increase it because you left a lot of trails? And that that is really what implicit transaction cost is. And that, you know, that's one of those things that's kind of stayed the same over the last few years. So the approach of big institutions, or at least it used to be, and I'm assuming to some degree it still is, is to be a little stealthy and to try and get these trades off without just you know, the, the, the signs in the marina are, at this point on, it's five miles per hour, no wake. They don't want to leave a giant wake in the market. They want to sneak in and sneak out. Right. And really, that's my job. My real job now, when we're not writing books and writing blog posts, is to trade for clients and to leave as little wake, and that's a great way of looking at it, as possible so that others aren't pretty much attaching to what you're doing. And it's difficult. Even though everyone thinks that there's all electronics and algorithms and whatnot, it is really difficult to make sure that you're not being spotted and taken advantage of. And that's how you lower your transaction costs. You lower them by not being spotted. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today, Joe Saluzzi of Themis Trading, co-author of the book Broken Markets. Let's continue our conversation a bit about what you've described as a market structure that's become broken. So we were talking earlier about the 1990s. How have things changed today? They've changed a lot when it comes to the actual who's trading what and, and the types of players that are out there and the, the diversity of liquidity and diversity of market participants. So the, what we found, and I'll just back up real quick, was we found as we were trading throughout the middle of 2000s, 2006, 2007, 2008 really changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And there was a reason why it changed a lot. And it was because of a regulation called Reg NMS that the SEC approved. That's that, the national market system. What is What did that regulation do? It, it pretty much exploded the equity universe. We used to have, particularly on listed names, on New York Stock Exchange names. Where there was a specialist down on the floor and a human was actually buying and selling and and setting the price. Correct. And they had about 80% market share on the New York Stock Exchange pre-07, pre-Reg NMS. Now they're around 25%. Wow. And that dropped almost overnight as soon as the rule was put in place. Reg NMS, basically, it was intended to help competition. It wanted to allow other exchanges and other venues to post their bids and offers and have people interact with them and not ignore those quotes. Conceptually, that's a great idea. You should have to trade with a venue that has a better price, right? Well, things. In other got- words, the, the best bid, so if you're a seller- you should your broker who's operating your half on your behalf should be hitting the highest bid, the best bid, as opposed to just what's most convenient. That's exactly it. And and one of the parts of the rule is called the trade through protection or rule six eleven, and that's what it says. If the best bidder offer before you can trade. Say say the best offer is ten cents. Before you can trade at fifteen cents, you've got to clear the ten cents. So that for a block trader, that becomes potentially a problem. You've got to kind of sweep through those levels, which we can do through you know, what they call yeah. electronically. They have a ISO orders, intermarket sweep orders. But, but the bottom line was, all of a sudden, once this this fragmentation, what, what the SEC called competition, we call comp- fragmentation. Mm-hmm. It allowed noise and different types of venues to start coming through, and that's where. 
the games began. And that's where the high-speed traders, the high-frequency traders, as they're so-called, so, they so really invent, they started coming in. So let's define that, because I know people are going to say, I hear about HFT, I hear about... But what are high-frequency traders, really? Uh, it's a great question. And I'll, I was on a CFTC subcommittee, and the, and the job of our subcommittee was to define high-frequency trading. And we really didn't come up with a very good definition. I actually dissented to it publicly when they finally came up with it because it's really hard to define. It's, it's, it's not exactly, you know, it's certainly obviously using speed and using technology to, you know, it's, and we think it's certainly a matter of when it comes to inventory and net positions being close to zero at all times. They're not holding huge positions, right. although they could be long one particular options contract and short the stock or long an ETF and short the future. But at the end of the day, they're net kind of neutral. They're so, not carrying any inventory. They're they're in and out very, very quickly, very short holding periods. Exactly. Well, and, and now some of them will hold. And, and actually now we're starting to see some public statements. There's an S1 out there from one particular HFT. They're holding positions, but they're usually being netted out against others. And we don't necessarily have a problem with a high-frequency trading market maker. I don't have a problem. if they're, I, I want to trade with any participant in a market in a pool that's all trading on a transparent and fair way. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't I want to trade? The sure. diversity is a good thing. We take issue with some of the high-frequency traders who are more when there's lots of pinging and sniffing, and, and, and we can get into exactly how this goes. So let me ask you a series of, of questions, or rather than that, I'm going to give you one word, and I want you to define it. And I have about 10 of these. We'll see how far these go. Let's start with co-located servers. A co-location is you can put your server at the New York, let's use the New York Stock Exchange facility, right next to the main matching engine, which sits in Mawa, New Jersey, not on, you know, the Stock Exchange is not on Wall Street. It's in Mawa, New Jersey. You can rent a, a cabinet, they call it, a cage, cage and right. put your server in there. It's got an equal length cord, just like everybody else, in the facility to get to that engine. If the trick is to be as close as possible so that you can see the data coming at it or pro process the data as fast as possible before your competitors are processing. So relative to co-location, let's talk about latency arbitrage. Great question. Okay, so latency arb is basically the matter of having two separate quotes. Okay, what I mean is if I was a, a, a high-speed trader and I, I can build my own quote, so what I do is a, there's 12, there's 11 stock exchanges, soon to be 12 again, but what you would do is you would take all those stock exchanges, get a direct data feed into them, co-locate your computers, and basically take out any sort of latency or time delay. Delay. Uh -huh. Delay and create a quote or create an NBBO, a national best bidder offer, that is most likely going to be faster than what the public sees because they see it through something called a SIP or a security information processor. So there's a difference in time. And there will always be a difference in time because the SIP has to aggregate all of those various exchanges. They have to do 12 or 11 or 12 and then show it. Right. Whereas if you're just doing one, you could be a little quicker. Well, you're doing your own and you're picking and choosing and you're creating your own quote. And the problem with the SIP is that NASDAQ, the for-profit exchange, runs the SIP. They're actually the provider of the SIP. A couple of years, last year they had a little problem with the SIP. And the question became, are they spending enough money upgrading the technology so that the SIP is as fast as everyone else? And currently, it used to be around a millisecond time delay. Now it's at a half of a millisecond. It sounds like nothing, right? But a half of a millisecond to a high-frequency trader is all the time in the world. We'll talk a little bit about Flash Boys later, but the book begins with the story of creating a fiber optic cable in a perfectly straight line from New York to Chicago in order to shave a couple of, literally a couple of milliseconds off trading. And the guys who did that spent a billion dollars on it, and it was an enormous return 
uh, on that investment. Let's keep going. What is quote stuffing? Quote stuffing is, is a theory. It's never been proven by the SEC, but it certainly does seem well, to exist. Well, we know exist. it's true. Yeah. Well, we've seen evidence of it. Nanex, by the way, puts out these fabulous graphics showing all these giant surges of quotes that show up for a millisecond and then disappear. Incredible work that Nanex, Eric, over at Nanex, I mean, he could be, he should be working for the SEC. The, the amount of data that he processes and the things that he sees, it's amazing that the folks in that the SEC or the other regulators don't see this, which kind of scares us a bit. But quote stuffing is that if stocks trade on what they call channels, there's, maybe there's A to, Z, A to D in one channel, E to F in another. If, if you're looking at a stock in the A channel, you can kind of go after another stock, send through a whole bunch of quotes, and then kind of extract out that to make your processing faster. It's an interesting theory, and it's certainly it's been proven. It's actually been talked about in some regulatory documents as well. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Joe Saluzzi. He is one of the partners of Themis Trading and the co-author of Broken Markets and a longstanding critic of market structures, high-frequency trading, and some of the other things that we discuss that works uh, to the investor's disadvantage. Earlier, we were discussing um, things like co-location and packet sniffing. Let's talk a little bit, before we get to the flash crash, talk a little bit about spoofing and walking away. What, what is spoofing? Spoofing is placing bids or offers where you have no intention of trading them. And there's actually been a couple of cases just recently. The CFTC has, by the way, has much more, the Commodity Futures and Trading Commission, much more power now under Dodd-Frank to go after spoofers than the SEC does. It's kind of a weird thing where the, right. how it was written in the rules. But they've come after a couple of guys recently and have settled a few cases where folks or these firms, high-speed firms, because you really you could manually spoof, but it's really not going to be right. effective. But they were basically placed layering the book, really, which is another the term layering. So at different prices, a whole bunch of orders that look like there's a big buyer or look like there's a big seller to move the price. And then, of course, as soon as someone comes in, they cancel all those orders. It's gone. There's right. never so, an intention to execute And that's the that. thing. And then how do they prove that? It's an intent scenario. And the CFTC, again, has a lot more leeway. So if you're a few, if you're a guy in the, in the futures world and you're spoofing, you should be a little scared now because the CFTC has a much, much more powerful regulation that they can use against you. I mean, isn't that really an attempt to manipulate markets? with no intention to actually execute a trade? Yes, and that's exactly one of the problems that we have with certain high-speed trading, or any trader for that matter. You know, We're critics of, of potential problems in the market and market structure. Spoofing has no business being in the market, right? So here's my proposal. Tell me what the result of this is. If you want to put a bid or a quote out there, you have to have it stay there for a tenth of a second. Is is am I being ridiculous or what's the no? And and we actually had recommended that once also, but the the high speed community, the other side, will say that that's going to mess up their models. They yeah. can't place bids and offers, and therefore they can't arbitrage certain scenarios. Let's let's say it's an ETF arbitrageur, and he's going to under you know he's going to trade five hundred stocks against the S and P five hundred. Right. If he's forced to place a bid or offer for a tenth of a second, which you know we're blinking our eyes, it's, it's right. ridiculous. I, you know, we certainly wouldn't have a problem with that. They would scream bloody murder. And then here's the flip side. They're going to say, well, if you do that, I'm going to take away my quote unquote liquidity and I'll be gone. And that's where everyone gets scared. So now let's let's talk about walking away, which is going to lead us to ultimately to the flash crash. You know, when you had a specialist down on the exchange, they were there theoretically to provide an orderly market. They were ready, willing and able to, to buy or sell stocks at an equilibrium price. Uh, the counter argument is you go back to 1987 and hey, down 23% in one day, 
I think that was a different era. You know, everything was fairly manual back then. But that taking away the liquidity, uh, don't they have essentially no obligation to make a market? Can't they just walk away anytime they want? Spot on, exactly. And that's the problem. Obligations are nowhere to be found in the market-making community anymore, although they will tell you some of the exchanges have an obligation of 8% within the NBBO, which means you can quote 92 offer at 108 on a $100 stock. Thank you very much. I'll take, you know, you can have that liquidity. But if you don't have an obligation- By the way, that's a touch more than uh, the flash crash, wasn't it? (laughs) Well, it had stub quotes then. They were trading them at zero, right? Right. That was how crazy was that? But, you know, people will say with a specialist system, there were problems and they let them away in handcuffs and all that. If there were problems, and there were, we would call those out. If we were back in the 90s right now, Sal and I would be talking about problems back in the specialist world because that doesn't – you get rid of all of, the, of these problems, right? But let's think about it. At least the specialists had what they call an affirmative and a negative obligation, which means they had to buy stock at certain times and they couldn't sell at other times. And the customer knew that, and there was a there was a, 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 a confidence to a that. A confidence. That's so the exact so word. Let's, let's talk about the flash crash. May 6, 2010, all of a sudden the – Dow plummets. I remember this because I was on a flight back from Dallas. I missed it. but And every time I fly now, people point out that the market gets crushed. <laughs> Don't but, fly. But um, uh, what happened? What happened on that day? That was an, an evaporation in liquidity, basically, right? And, and let, let me read you just a real quick quote from after the flash crash, the SEC, CFTC Advisory Committee put out a, a report, which we thought was one of the best pieces that ever came out of D.C. But really? Li- listen to these words, they said, talking about the flash crash. Indeed, even in the absence of extraordinary market events, limit order books can quickly empty and prices can crash simply due to the speed and numbers of orders flowing into the market and due to the ability to instantly cancel orders. So the books emptied. There was a situation. There was grease going on like there is today, right? Right. Same story. And then there was a supposedly a large e-mini order in the futures market. Not even a fat thumb, just a big order. It was an order, right. And by the way, it was a 75,000 contract order, which half of it wasn't even executed until after this was over. So it really is kind of an- That's a bad excuse in It's a bad excuse, and it wasn't the cause. The cause was the market was on pins and needles. The bids and offers just evaporated, and there was a professor- uh, actually, he was at the CFTC then. His name was Andre Kirilenko. He termed the phrase hot potato trading, where they basically the HFT guys started flipping back and forth between each other until their position limits got exhausted. And then they just walked away. And there was even one in the market that said he hit the button HFT stop, which meant get me out. Everything was done. Everybody just walked away. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Joe Saluzzi. He is the co-author of Broken Markets with his partner, Sal Arnuk. The two of them run Themis Trading. And we were previously discussing the causes of the flash crash. So uh, let, let's go back to that. So it's May 2010, and suddenly stocks that normally trade at $80, $90 are a penny. The Dow loses some crazy, uh, I almost want to say 10%. Is that a ballpark mm-hmm. number? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a matter of minutes. And a half hour later, everything comes snapping back as if it was no big deal. How on earth does that happen in the 21st century in America? Yeah, I think they're still looking into that, the, the regulators, right? But it happened, you know, but basically the problem a lot of the retail investors faced was folks who had stop loss orders in there. If a stock got to a certain level, they wanted to sell it. Those stop losses became market orders once they activate. 
Well, they're really, what happens with a market order normally, it'll get sent over to what they call an internalizing broker. Mm-hmm. Well, they will normally pick up this market order. They'll trade against it because they consider retail flow dumb. I'm sorry, that's, but that, that's their words, not mine. And they want to basically give it a sub-penny price improvement, and then they're off they, and they're trying to trade against it. In this scenario, the internalizers, tend to, they walked away as well. So these market orders got exhausted to the lit exchanges or to the New York and to the NASDAQ, and there was no bids or offers there. So what does a market order do? It goes down and it starts looking for the best bid or offer until it finds something. And even at a cent, one cent. And even at a You're cent. You're selling Johnson & Johnson at a penny. Yeah, Accenture was traded at a penny a share. So I think it was Sam Adams, too, which is whatever stock price now. Mm-hmm. A penny a share. It was absurd, and it was basically it was called a stub quote, where a market maker could place a one-sided quote. So he'll put a penny bid, offer it at $100, whatever it may be. So, you know, the SEC has since banned stub quotes, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was, why did that market order come into the system and have no bids or offers? Why did the limit order books that we talked about before just disappear? Well, it's not really real liquidity. It was kind of a phantom liquidity. It's there when you don't need it. And when you really need it, it disappears. Exactly. That's the big crit. That's one of my big complaints. It's there in a monsoon and disappears in a drought. So, so, <laughs> so there are some people um, who I've actually had on the show and had conversations with. Uh, Jack Brennan is chairman of the Vanguard Group. Cliff Asnes, the CIO of, of AQR, who have said uh, high-frequency trading and the modern competition have made costs of execution lower. They've tightened spreads. They've done a number of things, although the reality is, you know, the spread is tightened, but it's for 47 shares. If you have to buy 5,000 shares, the spread is still 10 or 20 or 30 cents. But when when, uh, the chairman of Vanguard said, hey, this has made our costs a lot lower, uh, how do we argue against that? Well, well, that's wonderful for Vanguard, who makes money on you know how many trillion of ETFs they have Three. right now. <laughs> Three trillion dollars. <laughs> yeah, you know, so that's, not too shabby. It's, it's you know I would want local you know, but for them it, it's a different <laughs> business model, right? Right. They're, they're running some, and for a quant, it's a different business model because they're flipping in and out of you know numerous numerous positions throughout the day. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about a traditional institutional investor who's trying to buy 100,000 shares of a stock that trades a million shares, things have changed dramatically for them because that footprint they're leaving is is basically the one that everyone's trying to pick off. That liquidity that's there disappears quickly. The obligations of a market maker are no longer there. The average trade size now on both lit and dark venues is less than 200 shares. Less than 200 shares that's for an amazing. average trade size. It's incredible. How do you get anything done? So when we look at the, the flash crash... What's to prevent that from happening again? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> what about sure. what about that uh, on a hundred dollar stock? Well, well, you won't hit you a have the one hundred eight and a and a ninety two. So in other words, they'll disappear, but they don't have to be there. They don't have to. Be no. There. They, well, they would, you know, to be considered a market maker, you have to be there. But if you can easily just shut it off and say, "Oh, I'm not going to be a market maker right now." Oh, but, you get to do that for the day. <laughs> All right. For the next hour, I'm not going to be a market and, maker. And that means that the exchange won't give you the special pricing that they give to these market makers. But just as an example, October fifteenth of last year, there was a flash crash in the Treasury market. I remember that. Okay. That that day should be on everybody's on, on their blackboard, just like May sixth was. That was an, a, a very very disturbing event because that's the most liquid asset in the world, and it. Cr- crashed in a matter of minutes, and then it zapped right back again, just like the equity market. How big a move was that? It, it, uh, the yields went from like 210 to 180, I think it was. That's it a was huge, huge move. Huge, right. huge, within minutes. And apparently, no, you know, there was a Ukraine situation, whatever it was. It was the same scenario. But why did the f- Treasury market, now they, it's a known fact that high-frequency traders are now in the Treasury market. Mm-hmm. Electronic trading has taken over the Treasury market. So it's the same scenario that, like I read before, limit order books can quickly evaporate. 
And that's what we're dealing with. So our, our issue is how do we build those limit order books again? How do we put diverse liquidity back into there where people feel comfortable that they're not going to get picked off all day? So you're cited in the book Flash Boys, uh, which was Michael Lewis's book. I actually read it on vacation last year, and his books are perfect beach reading. Mm -hmm. I find them both entertaining and, and informative, and we'll have to get Michael on the show one of these days. But you guys are mentioned in there. Tell us a little bit about what took place in that book and what some of the solutions to high-frequency trading are coming down the pipe. Because we've been hearing HFT is less profitable than it used to be. There's a ton of competition. The rule changes have affected them somewhat. What What's happening now? Well, the book was huge. The book was tremendous just to get the debate really moving forward. I and mean, we've been struggling with this since 08, right? So 2008, we wrote our first white paper. We've been, you know, we were on 60 Minutes in 2010. It's been a long time, a long right. struggle. Michael Lewis came in like a steamroller, and everyone is talking about it, which is fantastic. But, you know, he used the word rigged, which really got people freaked out. On 60 out. Minutes, Michael Lewis said the, the markets are rigged. Right. Do, do you agree with that? The structure of the market is rigged. Okay, mm -hmm. there are there are forces. The stock exchange model is broken. They're they're for profit companies that have different incentives than they should have. Now they use for, for people who may not be familiar with this. For most of their histories, the New York Stock Exchange was a non profit entity, uh, up until the whole situation with their former chairman getting paid bonuses that they wasn't supposed to. When you're running a non profit, that ultimately led. Um, okay, well, if you don't want to take a bonus uh, as a nonprofit, let's become for-profit companies. Right, and it changed their philosophy. It changed, okay, we're now for the bottom line. We have to return money to investors because that's what public companies mm -hmm. do, right? NASDAQ, for instance, has less than 10% of their money generated from equity cash transactions. That means stock market. So where's all the money coming from? Data sales, various things related to co-location, right. data feeds, which is a huge profit generator for stock exchanges. So they're and even one stock exchange is owned by brokers. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's huge huge conflicts of interest in the stock exchange model, which has created the problems that we see in what they call these smart order routers from the broker level, where they go to one exchange first because that offers a better rebate than it does from another exchange, or they go to a dark pool because it doesn't charge them anything. Define dark pools for listeners. Sure. Dark pools are off-exchange venues that don't need to publish their quotes. Back in the day when I was at Instant, we called it a crossing network at night because we wanted to cross chunks of stock. Now they operate throughout the day, and an average trade size on a dark pool is no bigger than a lip pool now, less than 200 shares. But, but back then it was big 25 and 50,000 share blocks. You, and there's still a couple of dark pools now, LiquidNet in particular, that's still over 40,000 shares on an average trade size. Wow. Those are institutions crossing stock, reducing transaction costs. And, and some may say, well, you're shutting out the retail investor. No, you're not, because those institutions are trading on behalf of retail right. investors. You're a mutual fund. That, yes. that, that's in uh, retail money. It's in your 401k. But in a mutual fund, not in, in an individual stock. Exactly. So that argument doesn't hold any water. But dark pools themselves have been so perverted and so over the years... What the Barclays case that the AG, the New York Attorney General, mm -hmm. has brought against the uh, Barclays Dark Pool, which is still pending, exposed a lot of what actually goes on inside and the lack of disclosure and the lack of transparency that the clients of the dark pools don't have no idea. They have no idea who's getting tiered and who gets the order first. 
These are the problems inside the market structure when you talk about the term rigged that do exist, that do advantage one class of investor over another that need to be taken out of the market. If we're playing on a level playing field, we've got absolutely no problem with any high frequency trading, low, I don't care who you are, low frequency guy. I want to interact with every piece of liquidity, but I want to do it on a fair and level playing field. So let's talk about the new exchange, IEX, which solves some of these problems. Absolutely. And we're, we're a trading. We were one of the first trading partners. You know, we think IEX, they nailed it with their model. They got rid of rebates, okay? There's no, there's a flat fee on the IEX exchange. You pay whether you make the liquidity or take the liquidity, one fee. They got rid of the speed advantage by putting in something, you know, Brad will tell you more than it's I can. It's a buffer, and essentially, it's a, a mile of spooled uh, fiber optics, yeah, so box. nobody <laughs> has any advantage right. of, of speed. The order comes in, and then it gets buffered for a millisecond and now everybody's arriving at the same time that's right and they, they took away the gaming that goes on in other systems and and they'll tell you about who types of clients they have but a lot of hft guys don't want to go there because no it's advantage not, it's right. no profitable right but for us as institutional traders we love systems like that we get our average trade size is much bigger on iex than it is on any other venue that that is a very very good system you get clean liquidity you're crossing things up nice that's what you're supposed to have. So the market, here's a great example. The market is now starting to solve its own problems. Wonderful. Without the regulators mucking it up more than they've done already. So before we um, uh, end the, the radio portion of our interview, if people want to read some of your white papers, where, where can they find out more about this? Sure. We run a blog, actually, themistrading.com. We have a blog that we'll put out maybe three or four posts a week that we normally, very topical issues on market structure. Obviously, our book, Broken Markets. A couple white of papers? White, where do they find White papers white are papers? on the website as well, Themis Trading. And, and, you know, we don't charge for these. We don't put this. This is not a business model for us. We, this, is a, this is a passion. This is what we do. We investigate things, and then we trade based on what we learn. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. If you're listening to this, it means you already heard the radio portion of our show. And now I get to uh, stop worrying about the time segments and actually just relax and enjoy chatting with my guest. I, I know Joe for, we know each other for a good couple of years. I'm trying to figure out where I met you and Sal. Could have been at a conference, one of the- uh, uh, Could have know, been. We certainly, we spoke at your conference right. a few years back, right. which was great. And we end up, um, we've done a couple of shows together. Yeah. We yeah, always, yeah. You know, it's a small universe that you end up mm -hmm. bumping into each other. Um, I recall, it was before the flash crash. It was when HFT really first mm -hmm. started rearing its head. I, I, I want to yeah, say- yeah. It was before the financial crisis. I want to say 07. Uh, could have been. When did yeah. you first we, notice things were getting a little, uh, you know, funky when you were trading? We we noticed it certainly like in 05, 06. Our first white paper was the end of 08. Right. So that's when we published something called Toxic Equity Trading, which kind of sat on the shelf for a while. Everybody missed it because we were in the mid-financial crisis. And yeah, no one really cared about market structure. It really popped up in July of 09 when the Goldman Sachs programmer, Sergei Oliknikov, got oh, arrested. Sure. Oh, then sure. Then all of a sudden people started Googling, what's this high frequency? trading right and they popped up our white paper and then our phones lit up there was a phenomenal um there was a phenomenal blog post and i'm trying to remember who first ran it i wouldn't be surprised if it was zero hedge about who is this guy that goldman sachs says that has escaped with the keys of the castle and if unchecked he could bring the market yeah, that's down. That's what the FBI said. It was at the, the FBI. FBI agent so said where that. the hell did these guys get that from? They had to have someone from Goldman whispering in their ear. And and, and Sergey is still being prosecuted. He's still going through criminal, which or is civil amazing because essentially, and you read the story, he essentially took open source stuff 
that he had, that basically was just a, a thing of convenience. And, uh, and and by the way, a lot of this is actually in Flash Boys. Yeah. But uh, uh, the prosecution for that, shame on Goldman Sachs for, for what they did. Don't cross the squid. Apparently not. <laughs> Although Matt Taibbi has, is still around. Nobody's, uh, <laughs> yeah. nobody, nobody's, he's the guy who coined the, the phrase, yeah. a b- the vampire jamming squid. its uh, blood funnel into <laughs> the throat of America, of the vampire squid. <laughs> if you remember that very, very famous Absolutely. article, uh, it stayed with us. So we, we blew through a lot of stuff due to time constraints earlier. Let me let me ask you a few more questions that that we missed. So we talked about improved trading costs and spreads and liquidity. The the one thing that we really didn't get to um, that I wanted was the difference between HFTs and specialists or, or market makers for that that fact. What is the legal obligation? What is the differences between what they do and what they used to be required to do? Well, that's just it. What exactly, what is their obligation to buy and sell a certain amount of shares? There is none. And actually, there's a couple of HFTs now. The, the bigger market makers are arguing for more obligations. They want, the guys who really understand, the, the HFT market makers who really know what they're doing, who have really figured this out and are not necessarily gaming the system, want more obligations. Give me some names. I can't get into all the specifics, but there was a- Citadel, Citadel GetGo. Who, who else do you put in, in that category? Well, I don't know if I would put them in those in the positive. I haven't seen those two guys asking for more obligations. Okay. Uh, I did see a letter coming in the tick size pilot program, which has been proposed by the SEC. Virtu actually wrote a piece in their letter, which I thought was really impressive, asking them to put more obligations on electronic market makers. That okay. Let's step up to the plate. How about the rest of those guys? Do they want obligations? Now, does this give a big company like Virtue an uh, an advantage? Is it a competitive advantage, or are they saying, "Hey, let's not kill the golden goose here"? I think they they're pretty tight on their market making. They pretty much. I mean, they're they look. They they just published an S one, and in there is you know a second time around for them going trying to get that IPO out. Right. But they've exposed pretty much everything they do. They're not afraid to talk about it. I would love to have some of these more of these one name IHFTs that you never heard of that have a web page of a half a page. Let them talk about their business model. Are they making markets, or are they just you know a bunch of guys in a few different pods who are looking at what, the, what we call front running, which is not really what they're doing, but what they're doing is because they have no customers. Customers, by the way, all HFTs are prop traders with no customers. They're so not what I makers. describe as front running. You're actually right because I'm mischaracterizing it. What they're doing is they're buying a data service from the exchange, which allows them to packet sniff. It allows them to see orders not after they hit the exchange, after they are traded. They it lets them see customer orders, not their customers, someone else's customers. Those orders before they're executed. So they get to run ahead of them. If I, if okay, we, want to, well, we all call it front-running. Right. It's running it's, ahead. Well, we, we, actually, what they're doing, and here's where they'll defend. I'll, I'll, I'll put my HFT hat on. Make them, they'll say that, no, no one can see an order before anyone else. It gets released from the exchange server at the exact same time, and anybody who spends the amount of money, the millions necessary to process it, can see that order. But guess what? Not you know most people aren't doing what they do, so we think what they're doing is not front running because it's a customer. It's not their but customer, it, but right. it's front running of demand and front running of supply. They're building the book. They're looking for what they call book pressure, and when they see a stock's about to move based on their speed advantage, they're off and going. Right, so they're taking that offer before you. They're canceling that bid before they get hit, so they don't get run over. Because essentially, they're just trading in and out of positions throughout the day. 
they have front-running demand and front-running supply. Technically, nothing illegal, illegal about that. Right. Now, as a broker, if I had a client order for 10,000 shares and I decided to buy ahead of that, i go to jail, right. as I should, because that's front-running. Right. That's, that's legal front-running. But my takeaway has always been, you know, it's a zero-sum game, and if these guys are, are, are capturing a penny on 100,000 shares, that means the quote-unquote natural buyer is not getting that penny, and you multiply it by all of the transactions, and that means tens of billions of dollars of profit each year that should be in grandma's IRA uh, or, or your 401k simply aren't there. It's going to the HFT firms. Yes. It's going to proprietary traders who are basically extracting that for their own benefit. And not and, providing and, a social value. That's well, the key question. Are they providing a social not value? Prov they're not going back into the ecosystem of the trading world. Think about the old days when you had an investment bank that had a trading department, a research department, IPOs, all sorts of different areas. And, a tr and the trading department actually was a loss leader at times. Right. They would lose money to facilitate the other parts of the business. But there you had the real purpose of a stock market was to help companies go public, right? Bring them out, put them on roadshows. That's kind of falling aside because the economics aren't there anymore. Right, the economics of the research department. Now, you talked about earlier how great decimalization is. I've read a number of people complain that when we went from fractions to decimalizations, you, you took a lot of the profit out of trading, and that profit was what subsidized research. Yeah. Is that true? Uh, yeah, and, and actually there's something called a tick size pilot, which has just been proposed. We wrote a comment letter. The industry wrote tons of comment letters on it. But the theory there is decimalization was great, but you never put in a minimum spread. In other words, you collapse the spreads down to a penny. Wouldn't it make sense for stocks a that are, say, a nickel or, or even like a dime for, say, a small cap that doesn't trade where you're trying to attract real liquidity? And real liquidity providers are not going to hang around when they're going to get picked off by somebody who just has a penny to come in and play in the game. Where now, if it was a nickel and you wanted to get in this game and pick somebody off, it's going to cost you more and your risk is going to go higher. It's a really good theory. We don't know if it'll work, which is why it's called a pilot program that the SEC wants to put out. But the industry is going nuts already because they think it's going to translate into what they call a trade at rule, which would mean that you can't trade in the dark until you trade on lit venues first. So they're having a fit because it would destroy their business model. But that's not what the pilot program is calling for. It's so, just so if we went to a nickel spread with size on on bid and ask, what would that do to trading costs? What would that do to to a company like Vanguard or any of the big uh, mutual funds? How would that impact? Their, their trading. Right. And, and this would be only on, on small to mid cap. So we propose the pilot program says $5 billion market cap and less. We said that's too high. Go to like $2 billion and less. Right. And, and, and that's still a, th a couple of thousand yeah. stocks under $2 yeah. billion. And, dollars. And, and those are like orphans. None stocks. of which really trade. Exactly. You know, they, they trade they, a few hundred thousand shares a day. They're orphans. No one right. trades them, right? How Nobody you, follows them. There's no Wall Street coverage on them. You know, last week we were talking about the small cap um, premium. And why small cap stocks have a tendency to outperform big cap stocks over time, especially if you control for junk. And that was one of the factors. Yeah. Is they're orphan stocks. There's not a lot of liquidity. There's almost no coverage. Yep. There certainly isn't big firm coverage. You're not going to get Goldman and Mor Merrill and Morgan covering nope. you know, $50 and, million and even dollar the small micro firms. caps. The, the right. small firms, the, the regional brokers, remember some of the names like Robinson Humphrey, sure. McDonald, and all of these names that, that have either been eaten up by other brokers have went out of business. They don't have the economics to support that trading anymore. Those market makers are gone. They've been replaced by algorithms and so on. So how do you bring 
bring them back. And and the theory and Jeff Solomon over at Cowan, who's the president of Cowan, he's big on this that as to how do I get these market makers back? And you have to put an economic incentive. You have to add, otherwise no one's going to do it. And the economic incentive would be a nickel or a dime spread, mm-hmm. and that's how. But you also have to have an obligation. Come in there and put some real size in there, not just a hundred shares. That that's been one of the complaints. You see this penny spread, and you go to buy something, and you get forty-seven shares. And what's the point? I need twenty-five thousand exactly. shares. The the penny spread is really the liquidity is illusory. The spread is illusory. A lot of things that look like one thing really aren't. Exactly. Although I'm starting to get a sense, a hint from you, that your position has softened over the past few years, because two or two years ago it was like. We're all going to heck, and this is a disaster, and the market's going to collapse under its own weight to, hey, there have been some incremental improvements and some market-based improvements like IEX that are actually bringing back some positive things to to the market structure. I would agree with that. And and, it had, and I think it's because of the efforts of a bunch of folks, and you know we certainly were one of the first out of the water, but if this market structure debate didn't get pushed forward, we wouldn't be talking about improvements right now. We wouldn't be talking about market market-based solutions, we'd be talking about the same problems. So, the systemic risks that you guys have written a lot about. They'd still be there, right? And then they are still there. But we're moving that, along in the right direction. We're getting exchanges now, like Jeff Sprecher of the New York Stock Exchange, coming in saying, hey, this make-or-take-a model is ridiculous. we got to get rid of it. A couple of years ago, you know, uh, Duncan Howard would never would have said that. So things are different, and the, and the market structure debate, it's a sophisticated one. It's moving forward, and this is what we always wanted. So on a scale of 1 to 10, if it was a disaster in 2000, 10 at 0, and 10 is the optimal market structure, where are we today? Four. Uh, not even not even halfway <laughs> there. Wow, that's a, that's a really fascinating number. What, what other areas of the markets were you? Uh, stock market-wise, I mean, the, the biggest, look, we have issues with, like I mentioned before, fragmentation. Dark pools, the the non-exchange, off-exchange uh, percentage of volume is close to 40%, which means that almost four out of every 10 shares is not traded on an exchange. So now when we look at really soft volume, which we've seen since, you know, March 09 lows, how much of that is just mom and pop walking away? How much of it is dark pools? Why has volume been so low and what does that mean? Volume is low right now because volatility is low. But volume's been fairly suppressed for five years, hasn't it? Uh, it off the peak of it, we were around 10 billion shares of, across all exchanges back when the financial crisis was going on. Mm-hmm. Now we're closer to six billion, so it's that's a big drop. Yeah, because we got rid of a lot of the noise. You know, the vol- if the volatility is not there, you can't profit from latency arbitrage situations. Right. You can't pick off someone as easily. Where's some of that volume going? It's going to other markets. The currency market has exploded with electronic activity. Really? With, because it's so it's much more volatile and it's very liquid and you know they it's trillions of dollars literally and, and it's it's not centralized the the, the the they don't even have a at least in the equity world we have a linkage that sip the security they don't really have a linkage in the in the foreign exchange world so it's a lot easier for you to develop your own quote and to see something better than somebody else mm-hmm. the banks have their own problems there as well there's an article yes this on, on bloomberg about the last look and things like that there's a lot of issues in the currency world which we in the equity world actually we're a lot more advanced when it comes to market structure than something in the currency really world. Pe- people have talked about the currency markets and and forex as the broadest deepest market with the most sophisticated systems and you never can you see a flash crash in currency oh absolutely 
Oh, really? I, I absolutely think you can. I mean, is it, it inevitable? Is it possible? Is oh, it likely? Oh, I think it's probably likely because with the with the global event, you know, if if the Swedish bank or the Swiss Swiss bank decides to change the way they're going to set things, which which we saw not you, too long ago, right? And you did see a rapid move in currencies right. because you know, is it really institutional volume? Is it real bona fide hedgers coming in there trading that? No, it's noise. It's guys who are using, and I call it noise, but it's basically a multi asset model. So you're trading stocks, equity, you're trading. Stocks, options, futures, currencies, bonds. You're putting it all together into this little magic sausage factory of yours, and you're developing a strategy. So if one all of a sudden there's an event in one area, you're going to move out. So, yeah, it could happen in any one of those markets. So zero to 10 is a four, so that's a big improvement. But that still means we're six away from 10, and and there's a lot of potential problem. So you you had mentioned um, currencies. You had mentioned treasuries. What about commodity markets? Commodity markets are a little different because they operate more in a vertical silo. So you don't have the multi-exchange, multi-venue model, and you have. So you're trading oil, or you're trading uh, rice futures, or you're you're not. Everything isn't as. It's but they use a huge leverage though. They do, uh, and they but they're. They're a lot more controlled. There. They seem to have their their grips on it better. I don't. That's I'm not, certainly not an expert on commodities. But you but, know, people used to talk about commodity markets like it was the Wild West yeah. and all the lock limit down and all this crazy yeah. stuff happens. And you're saying the structure is better well, than what we, we see elsewhere. Ironically, the, the the flash crash of 2010 that we spoke about earlier was stopped because of a, a piece of software at the CME, the Chicago Mercantile uh-huh. Exchange, called Stop Logic, which said that if it got too volatile, halt it for five seconds. I believe it was five seconds. And that's really what the bottom of the flash that's crash it. was. A five-second quote halt That was it. stopped the because, flash crash. And that tells you that every asset is linked. Because when the E-mini stopped trading, everybody said, hold on a second, what's going on? And not guys like us who are Trading stocks, but guys who have multi-asset strategies who are all electronically linked, then realize, hey, there really isn't something going so on here. For people who don't know, e-minis are the S&P 500 futures. Huge leverage with that. Huge. They're called minis, but you're putting up a million dollars and trading like I don't remember what it is, but yeah. it's tens of millions of dollars of stock. It doesn't take a lot of money to swing a boatload of stock in those. And it is supposedly the most liquid instrument when it comes to commodities. Really? Yet, that was also the one blamed for the initiation of the flash crash because they couldn't handle 75,000 contracts, which makes you kind of scratch your head. Well, how could the most liquid security in the world right. not handle? Sure, it's a big order, but it doesn't. It, the reason that that side put out doesn't hold water at all. Right. So first, the first rumor we heard was there was a fat thumb, which is trader talk for somebody accidentally throwing an extra zero on an yeah. order or or you know just leaning on a keyboard and you know if you ever lean on a keyboard and, and hear brrr, <laughs> just picture that on a trading desk and what that means when you're shooting you know millions of orders all at once it, it it's hey fat thumb that's really a problem I'll tell you one other problem that they have right now they don't have the surveillance the SEC in particular does not have a surveillance system to to keep up with today's modern markets today's microsecond trading you know, in a millionth of a second, these guys are doing things that we can't. There's a world underneath it, right? The SEC doesn't have a system to monitor. They actually had to sub out to an HFT guy to build a system called Midas that cost them two and a half million a year, right. which is barely a bunch of direct feeds being aggregated. How, how can Nanex do this? And if you haven't seen the the beautiful artwork <laughs> uh, that uh, how do I pronounce Eric's Hunsetter. last name? Uh, Eric Hunsetter's uh, work on is Nanex.net. Is yep, that right? That's right. Uh, he creates these beautiful mosaics showing all these quotes and and trades and the, their artwork. They're fantastic. All they are a, rep, a visual representation yeah. of actual trades. Yeah. 
How can he do it, but the well, SEC can't? It's incredible. He could have built, and I've spoken to Eric, and I, we speak to him often, but he could have built Midas for a lot cheaper than they spent on it, okay? Right. He runs it. He basically takes in the feeds, and he analyzes this stuff. But the problem with the SECs and, and the problem with our regulatory system is we've got futures on one side, which is the CFTC. We've got the SEC doing equities and options. They're not aggregating everything, and it's a currencies over there, treasuries over here. It's really very much fragmented. Right, and if, if you're if you're spoofing in the currency market to affect something in the bond market, you're never going to be caught. Is that going on today? I don't know because we don't have the surveillance systems to watch it. it but theoretically, that could I be would going think so. On. I absolutely. So, think so let me ask you a hypothetical question. One of the guys. So whenever we do these these conversations, my office is always, so who are we speaking with this week? And I always tell them. So, And I get some fascinating questions from, from some of the staff members. And my head of research said, hey, do me a favor. Ask Joe what would happen if tonight every HFT firm was shut down. What would happen to markets going forward? Much rejoicing. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, if they shut down... Sure, you're going to widen spreads, right? Naturally, if if the who biggest, fills in that gap, who well, who replaces them? It's a good question. The market forces that overnight, it's not going to happen, right? But eventually, let's take for instance that tick size pilot we were talking about. If the HFTs don't want to play in the stocks because of a nickel spread, there will be someone coming along. The vacuum will be filled. There's money to be made. There's money to be made. Real traditional market makers will come back. Real liquidity will come back. Maybe the spread is a little bit wider. But we would argue that a spread is really today's market, like you were saying before. If I'm getting 47, 47 shares, yeah, who cares if it's I want to buy 5,000 shares. How right. do I get 5,000? And if I can do it with a nickel spread, that's actually a better thing. Right. Then so, 47, 150, 240. By the time you fill your 5,000 shares, you're 15 cents away. That's right. And, and we've heard all sorts of stories about, about those sort of sweeps and uh, that penny that, spread is nonsense. No, it is. It isn't. And that's where you get picked off, by the way. People will see you coming, and that's where Brad over Now at, they move out of the way. They will, they'll disappear if you're coming through a slower router, and the next thing you know, they'll take the stock in front of you, and you're now paying a nickel higher, and you got 287 shares. You're like, what the heck are you doing? That's what you have to be. When you're trading now, especially with larger pieces, you better be sophisticated. You better know how the routes work. You better know what's going into every route, what type of order is going out. We didn't even get into these crazy order types, but you need to know the plumbing, right? Or, or, or like if you ran a race car, if you were a race car driver, you want to know what's in that engine, you better know the inside of this engine if you're trading size right now. You will get picked off. And then unfortunately, at the end of the day, you may think you got what they call a VWAP or the volume but, weighted average price. That, <laughs> that's going to be across all these different uh, bids and offers, but right. you actually paid. You match the daily V. So everybody, there's a lot of managers that will try to benchmark the VWAP, and they'll mm -hmm. say, if I got as good as the VWAP, I did a good job today. And we would argue Meaning that- Meaning you're not overpaying through the trades. Correct. Correct. Because you're doing an average job because that's the average price. And we would argue that if you're not sophisticated with your routes, you're actually causing that VWAP to be higher than where it should be mm -hmm. if you're a buyer or lower if you're a seller because you're not really paying attention to the interest of why did that 100 shares go up on the BATS inverted exchange? Why did it go up in a dark pool? Why is that router going here constantly in the same low rebate venue or high rebate venue? These are the questions that we ask all day long, why our trading is different than others out there. But once you learn the inside of it, then you'll be armed a little bit better. It's still going to be tough. It's not easy. So you've been doing this for 20 plus years. I remember when I began around that same time as a trader, and as if I'm a if I'm a seller, and suddenly Goldman shows up on the top of you know it was mostly Nasdaq stocks on the top of the the box as the bidder for size, 
I would get out of the way, but I wasn't a market maker. I was just executing orders um, either for proprietary trades mm -hmm. or on behalf of, of clients. This is really very, very different than those days. That's almost simple and quaint compared mm -hmm. to the complications you're describing yeah. today. It's it's you know that was like the axe they used to call it. Right, right it, that's it, right. And when the axe came in, everybody right. knew. And you but, knew in different <laughs> stocks it was different. Different how you know there were certain there were certain stocks that when Bear Stearns showed up, hey, everybody out of the right. pool. And there they're they're going to suck up a million shares. Or certain hedge funds, let's just call it that, everyone knew was quote-unquote smart money. Right. And they started ripping through his stock. But that was, you know, it was intelligence. Sure, there was issues back then of, of, of transparency as well. Mm -hmm. But the market now is so much different. And, and when you think about it, Scott Patterson, the Wall Street Journal reporter, wrote a book called Dark Pools, which I think is tremendous, by the way. And he, I love, now he also wrote The Quants. The, fantastic. Which is one of my favorite books describing what's taking place over the past 10 years. Yeah. But Dark Pools is almost like the Quants Part 2. It's very sophisticated. It's very fascinating. And, and he goes through the, the kind of the the lineage of what HFT, where they came from, and he goes back to this firm called Island. It was sure. an ECN, and when we were at Instant, that was our, one of our competitors. They were this small kind of firm, but a lot of the guys who were at Island kind of morphed out, and they went to these HFT firms along the way. And it's almost the Island came out first and came up with this "I'll pay you to add liquidity" theory. Mm -hmm. It was their original thing that said "I'll pay you to add liquidity," and now it's in every major stock exchange around Th the world. That was their competitive advantage. That's how they attracted all this volume. That's right. The other thing about uh, uh, the book Dark Pools was, I think, I may be confusing this, I think that's where I first learned that Renaissance Technologies, one of the most successful hedge funds of all time, 40% sure. a year for 30 years, so successful they said to their outside clients, hey, here, thanks for your money, but uh, we're just going to invest <laughs> our own money. That's how you know it's not a nonsense uh, return. We'll, we'll, we'll take it from here. Um that they were one of the earliest high-frequency traders and had, before anyone on Wall Street even had mm -hmm. a clue what they were doing out in East to talk it, these guys had come up with a series of just yeah. ingenious ways mm -hmm. Long, long before everybody else had figured this out, and, and that's when it was easy pickings for them, right? right? It was easy to shoot, have a latency arb situation going on when no one even knew what the heck it was, right? And now, I mean, to the lots of competition, and, much harder, and for, it's changed, and, and so we and it's see, increased their cost. So, so they're not as profitable. No wonder Jim Simon's retired. Mm. They're not as profitable, and I keep, although they're still wildly successful. Mm -hmm. And I continue to read that HFT firms are just becoming less and less profitable, mm -hmm. less competition, and and a handful of big guys are now dominating the volumes. And whether that's Virtu or GetGo or a handful of other companies. Um, which are also, which you don't go into details on, of names in, in broken markets, but Flash Boys does. Mm -hmm. So so is this just naturally on the wane, or it's, what's going on? It's the term they call the race to zero. This uh -huh. is by far the race. They are trying to zero out. That, that latency has gotten so squeezed. But here's the problem for an HFT. If I'm an HFT and you're an HFT and you decide to build a new microwave network that's going to get you one microsecond faster some data. A, th and a thousandth of a second. A, a millionth. A millionth a million, of a second. A million, uh, whatever it may be. I'm, I'm just throwing numbers out there. But you're going to be faster because you're going to spend $10 million, say, building a microwave between here and Chicago. Well, go, now, so now, no fiber, just oh, sending yeah. it over Fiber's the air. Fiber's gone. Microwave, it's now over the air. Lasers, whatever else. Exactly. Right. But if you do it, 
I have no choice but to do it if I want to remain competitive to you, which means now it's going to cost me $10 million, which means that's going to be sucked right out of my profits. Right. That's why you're seeing the margins start to collapse. So eventually, I think what will happen is the smaller ones are going to drift off. They mm-hmm. will not be able to compete. The bigger ones will get bigger, which does become an issue of, of how much power they're having. Mm-hmm. But that's where you're going to have to have some regulations coming in saying, okay, let's get some obligations on these guys as well. They're not going away. They're, they're, they're so away. HFT is here to stay. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to see them disappear. But it's morphing, in other words. It's becoming it's, something different. I guess they're trying to legitimatize themselves, right? It's it's like— uh, Well, is that you know, is that ha- going to happen? Are they going to become— Obligated, legitimized players, or are they still just snipers picking off, you know, millipennies here and there? Different. There are different ones. There's, you know, HFT is different, and it's really hard to bucket it. And we've learned. Look, we were not the smartest when we first started doing this, and we've learned a lot, a lot over the years. And we've learned that you can't just bucket HFT into one bucket. There are different types of right. players, right? And they do different things. But the smaller players who are there to pick off and just trying to kind of sniff out a little of what we call venue arbitrage, trying to pick you off because one venue slower than the other. That business is going away. They've, they're squeezing that out. That, that that latency arb that you used to see when you trade bats versus Nasdaq or a dark pool, and the dark pools are now being more you know investigated more like by the attorney general. That's changing. But market making, if you call it market making, you know we we call it something different like you know specialists and so on. Right. But if they're market making a stock versus a, an ETF or an ETF versus a future, and they still want to do that and they think they're profitable, hey, congratulations, good luck. But let's play by the same rules. That, that's amazing. I can remember as a trader being able to visually see different prices or throwing out a quote an eighth below the bid, suddenly seeing I'm filled and immediately selling it to somebody else an eighth higher. The markets were, at least on an eighth level, mm. so inefficient. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking the 90s. We're not talking yeah. post-2000. Uh, uh, but you could literally do that if you were quick on the keyboard and you had a yeah. couple of little macros set up. Uh, but you were an just, HFT. You didn't even know it. <laughs> uh, if, if you call that high-frequency <laughs> trading, it's, it's a, a human manual, uh, just a, uh, quickly picking off an eighth on 1,000 shares, not exactly no, high-frequency. Low and, frequency. By the way, whenever you, whenever you did that, it was, it was just a rare – it was on a, a slow, boring day, mm-hmm. and you had nothing to do, and let's throw a few quotes out and see what happens. <laughs> Suddenly, you find yourself filled, and you're, you know, at, at worst, you're out for a break-even or an eighth mm-hmm. loss. But it was just one of those things that – and you always wondered, why can't you do this automatically? Why no. wasn't there technology for it? Never in a million years mm-hmm. imagining it would be like it. Yeah. It's gotten. It's gotten today. Yeah, and there is a have and a have not in the world of, of trading now. The, the haves are the ones who can pay enough money to buy that co-location facility, you know, to rent the co-location facility, to purchase the data feeds, to set up a microwave network, to do all the things they do. Right, so you have created a tiered process in in the in the trading world. There's no doubt about it. There are those that do and those that don't. So you know you're really not competing on the same level playing for it when it comes to technology. But look, I'm not going to argue against certain things, but I am going to argue when there's a dark pool out there and he's advantaging one client because that client is you know an HFT and he's going to say I'm going to give you a special look or something like that. The, here we have a lot of issues, or you know, a couple aren't of, exchanges doing something similar by selling that data? They are, and data feeds, what they call the proprietary data feeds, we think should absolutely be looked at by the SEC. Should be well, public. Why they have? You here's what the the exchange will say. Hey, Barry, you want to buy a data feed? 
Love to sell you one, buddy. 10000 a month, here you go. Purchase it. Any, anybody can buy it. They're going to turn around. But realistically- But 10000 a month doesn't mean that if I'm out buying 100 shares, I'm gonna, I need it that. It doesn't help you. Right. It doesn't help you. And then you also got to build the entire infrastructure to make that data. The data feed is just a fuel that runs the engine. Right. you got to still build the engine. Okay. But what they're giving in these data feeds is not just- There's a lot of information and a lot of content. In fact, a couple years ago, we actually wrote a white paper where we caught two of the major exchanges giving out information on what it was supposed a hidden order flow. Uh-huh. So an institution could put in 50,000 shares hidden. I don't want anybody seeing it. But they were putting tags on this flow, which basically allowed others to re-engineer it, people who bought the data feeds, and figured out that there was a buyer there. So let me ask you a question. Knowing the exchanges for profit are willing to do that, why would anybody trust anything they say? Aren't these just shameless <laughs> salespeople who are basically going to say, I will sell this client down the road to that client because I can. Is that what actually took place? It, it Back then, absolutely. Were there that, penalties? Were there fines? No, they, there- no. The SEC didn't even look into it, but the exchanges, after they caught grief from the institutional community, changed it voluntarily. Just like the uh, Direct Edge Exchange a couple of years back were doing flash orders, where they were showing orders to a certain subset of clients for half a second, which is an eternity in their right, world. Right. A half a second. Would you like to buy this? No. Okay. You go out in front and run it yourself. It was ridiculous. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but here's what they'll, in their defense, they're going to say, well, wait a second, Joe. Everything we do is public. Everything that we do has to be filed with the SEC. After the fact, three months later, in 40 pages of six-point legalese. Hey, thanks, buddy. It's approved by the SEC. Why would they ever allow certain order types to be approved? Who is at the SEC looking at the exchange documents saying, yeah, that looks like it's fair to everyone? It's insane. So here's why we call it a broken market. Because you've got regulators who are allowing this, exchanges who are for-profit, HFTs who take advantage of it, and in between is the retail and institutional guy going, what the hell is going on? That That's unbelievable. I, I'm going to end this segment with um, a quote from my colleague, Josh Brown, who said, and I love this quote, the best way to defeat high-frequency trading is with low-frequency trading. <laughs> Meaning if, if you're Don't not trade. in there, if you're not in there as a retail investor, yeah. you're if you're not them. in there trying to compete with these guys, you're not going to lose. You'll never beat them. That, that, that's exactly right. Good quote. Well, well, this has been really uh, a ton of fun. Thank you so much, Joe. My say pleasure. hi to your partner, Sal, for us. Uh, we've been speaking with Joe, I, I was going to say Joe Arnock. We've been speaking with <laughs> Joe Saluzzi, uh, author of Broken Markets and partner with Sal Arnock of Themis Trading. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure to look up or down an inch or two on iTunes uh, or on BloombergView.com or on Bloomberg.com to see the rest of our podcasts. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.